Hello, welcome back to the New History Podcast. We're on episode 11 today. It's myself joined by Lily, as always. Hello. And today our special guest is Nick. Hi. And for our topic today, we'll be talking about environmentalism, mainly in uh, America in the 20th century. Um, So I'll hand over to Nick to give us a quick intro on uh, what we'll be talking about today. Okay, so um, this is designed as a overview, I guess, of uh, a broad swathe of environmental history rooted in discussions about environmental protest and what animated Americans during the 20th century to kind of um, become politically active uh, in taking an interest in their changing environments. Mm-hmm probably more rooted in the western states and the eastern states because that's my specialism and a lot of environmental history uh, as a discipline uh, emerges first in the us and and focuses on the western states mm-hmm. um and i guess we'll see how far we get and we'll we'll, we'll begin we'll be getting around 1900 and go at, hopefully at least to the kind of the 60s 70s okay cool. and and just for everyone who doesn't know who nick is or why is he here can you Tell everyone listening at home your background and all that jazz. Yeah, so I'm currently an independent scholar, uh, graduated from the University of Kent uh, with a PhD in history um, about two years ago. Um, My specialism, um, and I have talked to Lily about have some anxiety about this, Mm. I would probably self-identify as a cultural environmental historian. Mm -hmm. Um, I... I'm mainly interested in there's there's arms of environmental history that look at how humans through time have sort of understood and constructed either like myths or ideals or beliefs about the environment. Mm. I'm I'm a little bit removed by one from that in in that most of my research to this point looks at how the American press, particularly the conservative press, not necessarily the Republican press, but the conservative press in the United States, mm-hmm. um, has tried to understand and grapple with and frame at points the environmental movement itself and the difficulties of of understanding that because hopefully as we'll talk about today it's a very complex kind of internally conflicted social protest movement okay that makes sense um okay i think simply because we haven't really talked about this all that much uh beforehand either in the podcast or on the blog and Nick and I can probably go into the thick of it and lose everyone. It probably will be a good starting point to sort of have just a general description of what we mean or what you mean by environmental history, so then everyone can get on board with that. So simply <laughs> unpack this subject, which is, you know, long and big. Um, what, what, what do you think um, we can classify as environmental history? What's your take on environmental history? Okay, so the, I, the the short answer, I think, I can, <laughs> which I, I can actually give a short answer, but there's a lot of, I have a lot of kind of questions and concerns about the definition sometimes, is that environmental history really is ultimately about human interaction with the natural world, or, or it's, it's um, and many histories that won't self-identify or be promoted as environmentalist histories will include the environment but i think it's about recognizing um the way in which the environment sometimes has agency in historical narratives Uh, and there are 
problems where you can go you know too far with that but uh but yeah it's uh, recognizing the 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 environment as a as a historical actor uh, and the human interaction with it I think that's a fair definition. Um, at least a, a concise definition rather than going all, all, all over. And um, before we move on about like specific terminology and, and stuff like that, um, I was wondering, just because obviously I, I get it, but you mentioned, you know, you how you perceive yourself in the terms of dealing and engaging with this uh, discipline. Can you tell those listening why you perceive yourself more that way rather than saying an environmental historian or something along those lines, just so they can get a bit more of context of how normally, from an academic point of view, this is treated? Yeah, so there are, there are I think there used to be kind of considered three, three clusters of environmental history. You have the, the cluster I'm in, which I would identify as like cultural um, uh, historian, and cultural or social historian alone may be sufficient to kind of characterize my research where you get into the case where maybe you're looking at what i would call although it's a bit, bit problematic than pure environmental history if you're looking at more like material issues you will find that most environmental historians are interdisciplinary i mean i think most veins of history are interdisciplinary these days but mm. um if you are looking at material environmental history, so environmental change, the other disciplines you will be relying upon, so like ecology, biology, physics, that is perhaps seen as a more, I guess, like unique or like condensed approach to environmental history um, or less diluted, I suppose. Whereas mm -hmm. a lot of my work may, you know, looks at the environmental movement, but I'm not necessarily um, interrogating biological archives or scientific research to to look at environmental change in the way that some environmental historians might mm -hmm. i mean it's 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 quite a minefield at least from my experience as well just dealing and talking about it from a more humane and cultural point of view people just don't seem to like it but i mean it's kind of where we cultural scholars end up anyway people just don't really like us for some reason we're just too special <laughs> and they just yeah they 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 have a hard time sometimes i think trying to understand what we're trying to do which is actually uh, put these complicated things in more simple and humane ways so that everyone else can get them but anyway that's uh, that, that's just historiography, and we will not get into that subject because we can be here till tomorrow. And that's the day a, yeah, that's a long debate. <laughs> yeah, um, but obviously, I mean, um, attached to not just environmental history, but you know, the, the environment overall and ecology. There is many, many words, and I think, um, you know, they can sometimes be dropped in like jargon, and um, it can be a bit. Uh, maybe threatening is not the right word but if you don't necessarily know what you're getting into it can be a bit sort of off-putting or not necessarily clear so um i know that there is some terminology that you wanted to um to discuss so maybe you can run us through that i think there were three specific topics one of them was conservation preservation and environmentalism itself and how they all sort of interlink but also how they're different and, and why they are all relevant for what you're doing and, and this conversation 
Yeah. Okay. So this is where I really will have to rein myself in because this could get uh, <laughs> this, this yeah. is where this could get really long. And I know what everyone really loves uh, when they listen to a podcast or anything, right? Is is a long and dry discussion about academic terminology. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm guess to throw back to you guys, what do you know about any of these three terms? Because neither of you are U.S. scholars, right? So I'd be actually curious no. to know if you're or if you've had any exposure to these terms. Um, you know, outside in a non-US context, because, yeah, really. Mm-hmm. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, for me, it's, it's difficult to say, because um, in terms of my approach to environmental history, it's mostly been from a world or a global point of view. So, um, and, a, and a more recent or in the past point of view, so it's, is tricky because a lot of those terms don't necessarily translate very well when we're talking about like the Neolithic or the Middle Ages. You know, yeah. the, the lines between conservation and preservation <laughs> are blurred, and um, env- environmentalism didn't even exist as a concept there. We can have some precursors, and we can see some, uh, I guess, inception points on on things that eventually helped us have the foundations for environmental law. But whether we can consider environmental law environmentalism, I know that's an entire um, minefield in its own right. So um, it's yeah, I, I'm I'm reluctant to sort of um, pull pull the gun on that one because I am very aware that a lot of these words don't don't translate in the context that I normally work with them. Um, and also because, and it, this is something that I find often when you work in cultural studies and in interdisciplinary studies, um, they all end up kind of meaning different things to different people, depending on their perspective. And from a global view, um, you know, conservation, and, and I'm, I'm not just even that, just thinking about um, languages and linguistics, um, you know, in, in this, in the Hispanic-speaking world, conservation and preservation are pretty much exactly the same thing. We don't have a right. necessarily distinct enough word for both of them. Um, it, they kind of go hand in hand. You cannot have conservation without preservation and the other way. So, yeah, it's hard for me exactly to answer your question because <laughs> I'm probably going to lead on to other questions rather than answers. So, yeah. uh, but one thing that... Um, I'm aware, and that often happens, or at least from my viewpoint, is that obviously a lot of the environmental movements and whatnot started in the United States. So I think the vast majority of these concepts have been borrowed from that inception point and then sort of adjusted Mm -hmm. as time has gone on. And as other countries and cultures have gotten involved, they've sort of been more fleshed out and given different depths and dimensions. But that doesn't really answer your question at all, does it? Um, I mean, I think some of the things you said sound familiar. So certainly with conservation, I think, and preservation these days, I think most people would consider them interchangeable. And at least in the US context, preservation isn't really used as a term. Preservation as a term kind of died out really around mid-century, at least in like, like, at least it was no longer expressed in a kind of a popular way. Uh, And you're right, the environmentalism in the US, when I was doing the research on my PhD thesis, I was, you know, part of the, part of the, the issue in trying to work out how the, the the right wing in America was responding to the growth of environmentalism was looking at how they used the term and how they were invoking it over time. And before 1970, maybe 1969, the when it, the word environmentalist or environmentalism is used, 
Um, it's, it's actually, there aren't many references, but they're used in reference to um, sewer workers, which I think certain critics would have loved to know, but it doesn't seem like anyone really made that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've never really found a moment where everyone gets together and tries to define the term, but it's just because everyone was so concerned about environment, uh, the environment, they just, you know, started attaching the isms to the end of it mm-hmm. uh, naturally. Yeah, for for me, I, I guess um, the thing that I think of when I see those words is obviously conservation and preservation can mean a lot of different things, whereas yeah. environmentalism is obviously kind of a little more focused on the environment. It's in the words. So, um, I mean, I assume that's kind of the newer term. Um, it's, it's not that new if we think about it. Like, I could be wrong, but... Compared to the others, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, for sure. Um, but then, you know, obviously, even environmentalism itself has changed so much to date. Um, yeah. And you have branches of people who believe in ecology, but not in environmentalism. Um, and and parts of environmentalism that perhaps remain a bit archaic because they're dealing with issues that are sort of not useful to fix the problems that we have right now. So, yeah, and, and I guess the, the big issue here as well is that within an environmentalism, at least from my perspective, is that as it happens, every single time you have an ism <laughs> attached to a word is that there, there are aspects of the movement that become radicalized and obviously they, they cause harm and problems for those who are not of that tendency and therefore that creates a lot of friction and that's where other terminologies come from and revisionism comes from mm-hmm. um, and i appreciate that's another ism in there but mm-hmm. that, <laughs> you know that's that's kind of yeah it's um it's complicated <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the best i have yeah um, so, so um i have a lot on this but yeah i guess the, <laughs> sim- the, the simplest way and maybe the, the way i always told students when i was teaching environmental history um at kent was there is there is a thing I used to call it the parable of the tarantula, but I don't think it's really a parable. So I'm just calling it the tale of the tarantula now. And and by all accounts, this is a recorded historical event that happened. Um, there are, I think, many listeners will be aware of Theodore Roosevelt, very famous um, yeah. early 20th century uh, U.S. president. Um, very passionate about the West, about conservation of natural spaces. There are mm. two, uh, and he's at the Grand Canyon. And there are two other figures with him. John Muir, which people, some people may be aware of. Uh, he's a fairly famous uh, figure. And he represents the preservationist side of this uh, debate. There is uh, another figure who is reasonably well-known as a historical figure in the US. Um, and we can maybe talk about his accomplishments as well in, in a little bit. Called Gifford Pinchot, uh, who was the head, first head of the US Forest Service. Um, and so the three of them that were Grand Canyon and Muir and Pinchot, uh, so if, sorry, if Muir is the preservationist, Pinchot is the conservationist in, in this story. And they are, they go for a walk together uh, along along the trail away from the rest of the party, away from the, the kind of the newspaper people and the media that are there. Um, and they come across a tarantula that's wandering across the path. And Pinchot goes to step on the tarantula and kill it. Uh, and Muir stops him. Uh, and that's kind of the encapsulation of the the differences uh, between the two and their philosophies. And they both effectively are the forefathers of these two different schools, conservation and preservation. Pinchot believes that man can intervene in nature and modify it for the benefit of man and improve it as a result. Muir is far more intractable and obstinate in certain ways. And he believes nature should be insulated from man. 
so it's uh, to, mm-hmm. to a much greater degree. So it's kind of hands off. So John Muir would be kind of he's seen as the the sort of the forefathers of the modern idea of like wilderness and the idea that you, you know nothing should go into the wilderness. So and that has like Lily talked about you know like isms and ideologues have emerged with this idea over time. And so now today you have fringe movements in the US that, that think you know if you you shouldn't be able to take phones into a wilderness area. Uh, there are certain rules mm. in certain parts of the US where you can't, you can you can take bicycles, but you can't take quad bikes, you can't take anything mechanized in some wilderness areas. Mm. Uh, and then you have the real hardcore, which are like if you if you kind of fall down and break your leg in a wilderness area, then that's that's you dead. You, you're not allowed to call for help. There's very few people who are that extreme, but they right. they are around. Yeah. Um. So those are kind of the two schools that are eventually going to form. Um part of the puzzle that makes up the modern environmental movement in the US. Mm. Interesting. Uh, out, out of interest, where does where does Roosevelt fall between that? <laughs> uh he's definitely more more of a conservationist. Um right. thought so, yeah. He, yeah, he's a big big fan of um uh the wild but also uh, of business and expansion. It's certainly like his his bullish kind of attitude um of making the US a you know international um force. Right. Uh, plays into that um yeah but but and and ultimately like roosevelt to some degrees he's a utilitarian and a lot of this um a lot of the conservationists it's about utilitarianism you know the right we'll, we'll switch from a mode where uh, and i mean it, in terms of this whole debate it emerges in the us as well which we don't see at least in large parts of western europe and the uk mm-hmm. because the, the southwest at the moment i don't know if you, you've seen the the news recently about the kind of the heat dome that's formed is that yeah. the mm-hmm. southwest us is incredibly arid so they have to have this debate uh, really at the end of the 19th century about how to preserve the natural resources and mm-hmm. what they're really concerned about in terms of conservation is uh, water first yeah. and foremost uh, wood uh, and grass because if if those things aren't managed they are going to you know diminish and they're not going to be able to um, survive in any meaningful way Mm. Yeah. Okay. No, I think that's um that that early stages of how things kick off with conservation conservationism. I guess maybe it doesn't sound right, but let's go with that for the time. They are definitely very much about yeah. I think I yeah utilitarian is really the the right word and the entire political atmosphere of of the time of the period i think very much sort of was inclined to a more pragmatic point of view rather than a a, a conscious point of view and with conscious i mean you know our our self reflection into actually what we are doing to the planet rather than what is happening uh, mm. around us as a result of what we're doing if that makes sense because there are two completely different thoughts of process one of them is ah okay i don't have coal or gas or oh my god we're running out of petroleum and the other one is like crap what have we doing with all of that petroleum for the last yeah. however many years so it's it's definitely the the word that comes to mind for sure and that sort of summarizes that early early stages of conservation is that utilitarian pragmatism that ultimately i mean i don't know nick you can correct me but it's, it's very much driven by a very capitalistic notions of resources and and the planet which i guess particularly given the political developments of the time period were were kind of on trend on topic i guess uh, trending on twitter 
Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's it's one of those things. Um, so we've moved on from that sort of diehard, hardcore capitalism into a different type of capitalism. Uh, things things have changed. Um, so, yeah, I guess um, kind of tying in from, from that, uh, and I was wondering, you've kind of touched on tarantula already and, and that sort of early stages of conflict. Um, so obviously I know one of the things that you look into is protest and how these protests kind of started becoming a sort of, maybe not an inception point, but a, a, a spitball effect of let's move things forward, let's change things, um, even if it's from a little bit. So how how does that start happening in, in, com in correlation to these early, early stages and where does that take us next? So the the in terms of kind of I guess if you're looking for manifestations of US environmental protest, the the, the major kind of first conflict is um, and this is going to sound like I'm I'm desperately trying to keep it in the uh, the in the early years of the 20th century, but uh, there is a battle to prevent the building of a dam uh, in mm -hmm. California in 1914. Um, in a place called Hetch Hetchy Valley, which mm -hmm. is, I think, nor it's it's near Yosemite, um, mm -hmm. but it's more remote. Um, and large parts of, I believe, San Francisco burned down in 1906 after an earthquake, and they decided they needed a water source, and that's where you get into that utilitarian um, conflict, or I guess uh, versus that's where like, conservationists would be pro dam because it's utilitarian; people need water. So let's right. you know um, responsibly create something so that you know um the people of the uh, the city can have uh, the resources they need whereas a preservationist the idea of a dam and you're going to see this because i'm going to rapidly jump forward um in a second um mm -hmm. if there's any early animating problem for kind of the the, the precursors to us environmentalism it's always going to be the building of hydroelectric hydroelectric dams that is mm -hmm. above and beyond there are there's certainly other debates but one of the problems with preservationists is they tend to be um, they tend to fall into that kind of elite class in America. They mm -hmm. tend to be male. They tend to be white. They tend to be rich, and they tend to, you know, almost like in almost in a sort of contradictory way, they tend to have large business and industrial connections, despite the fact they they are very anti. They or they become increasingly mm -hmm. anti industry. Mm -hmm. um, so. There are urban issues going on at the time, and there's, there's some level of African-American protest toward urban conditions, but preservationists are generally not, they're kind of, they have a somewhat myopic view. They're blind to the problems of urban America, which there are many at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. um, so after this battle in 1914, there's there's environmental history because it emerged as a result of kind of the social protest movements in the 19, uh, 1960s and 1970s. A lot of the figures like Muir, they have this kind of mythos around them. And I don't think environmental historians have always helped get to the truth of this. I think I think we've got better through the generations, but certainly the first generation of US environmental historians, they built up these figures um, to be more heroic than they perhaps were. Right. Not in not in the sense of worship, but more in the sense that they gave a reason they gave reasonably accurate portrayals, but they were somewhat blind to the their limitations or the kind of things they weren't talking about that were obvious to other members or groups within US society. Um, so so dams is kind of this big one. And it, it reflects the idea because dams are always going to be built uh, in mountainous terrain. And mountainous terrain, that 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 uh, that's the aesthetic appeal of those landscapes 
mm-hmm. is always going to be the thing. And preservationists really have had this had this problem for a long time, the first half of the 20th century, where they tended to view a landscape as pristine. And the second there was any kind of like any mining settlement, any road was built through, that landscape then was desecrated, you know, and I Right. People have theorized this relates back to kind of American interpretations of, of religion um, and various other things. Mm. But they have a problem in recognizing that there are kind of spaces that exist in between the, you know, the, you know, the perfect and the absolutely destroyed. Um, and so they, they often vehemently defend these topographically immense spaces and they tend to ignore mm. a lot of other stuff. Um, and so that is kind of why we can jump ahead, because the issues of, of kind of through World War One, uh, the interwar period, and World War Two remain largely the same. Uh, issues of park access, of you know building roads into parks, um, park tourism, uh, res- I guess resources and recreation remain the two animating forces for both these movements, both conservationists right. on one hand and preservationists on the other. But when people start coming back from World War Two and we get into the late forties, that is going to slowly begin to change. Okay. Why is that? So, <laughs> sorry, I know that's that's so, very no, like yeah. woo, spearheading. But, there's there's a few yeah. um a few I guess a few issues I would point to. One is this growing, the growing idea of ecology is beginning to percolate mm-hmm. into some uh, land stewards. Uh, anyone who's in, kind of has an interest in U.S. environmental history will know Aldo Leopold uh, wrote a Sound County Almanac, um, which was a what well, is it was a posthumously released collection of essays uh, about his experience. Um, and he was very deeply involved in managing land for hunting. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the preservationists often feared that conservation was kind of the, are, are you guys both familiar with the term greenwashing where corporations will appear yeah. more environmentally friendlier. Yeah. So they, they kind of had this suspicion that before the term greenwashing existed, that, this idea of responsible use was a way for companies to seem more beneficent than they actually were. And certainly by the 1930s and 1940s, a lot of the government bureaucracy that had arisen to manage water and forests, et cetera, et cetera. um, I think it, it, they kind of, um, they folded easily is the the polite way of putting it. I had something else and I was going to say, but I won't say it. Mm-hmm. Um, they folded easily when it came to industrial demands uh, and mm-hmm. the indu- industri- uh, like nascent industrial lobbying was very potent in the context of, of US Forest Service and that kind of thing. Um, and so you have these situations where um, Aldo Leopold noted that um, to sustain kind of this wealthy interest in hunting in some of these lands they would always kill off all the wolves but the problem mm. is if you kill off all the wolves then the deer can kind of run rampant they can eat everything and what Aldo Leopold found I, th- I think it was in the north rim of the Grand Canyon um, was that the deer ate all the foliage and then they all starved to death yeah. um, so there's this idea that responsible management of resources if it's exclusively for human benefit is not going to work long term because mm-hmm. that's right. not how the environment self-regulates yeah. um the second concern which is when we get into even more problematic territory arises in the 1930s and 1940s and this is the first i guess environmental issue that we would still probably today regardless if we're us or not recognize as within the kind of the rubric environment or within the boundaries of environmentalism and that's going to be issues about overpopulation 
Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a guy called, um, I have no idea how to pronounce his surname. I think it's Vogt, V-O-G-T, William Vogt, um, who wrote Road to Survival. Uh, there's a guy called Fairfield Osborne who wrote Our Plundered Planet. Um, and these are books worrying that uh, environment, uh, sorry, uh, population is going to become a serious issue in the 20th, 20th century. Uh, the big book on this, The Population Bomb, which I think came out in 1969, 1970, mm-hmm. by Paul, Paul Ehrlich, um, is, is really the big one. The, all these books share a problem in that they are they've been they were widely off on their timelines. So I think Paul Ehrlich said by the year two thousand the United Kingdom won't exist anymore. It will be right. a kind of an apocalyptic hellscape <laughs> because the population will have you know exploded so much. You know that's the title population bomb. Um, although it's not just about the UK. It's, he's he was an American. It was kind of a world perspective. Mm. Um, that they won't exist anymore. And you can always argue that maybe eventually overpopulation is an, a long term environmental issue that is going to get us in a severe way down the road. But even if these kind of doomsayers, which they were often called, are eventually right, they were dramatically wrong in terms of the timeline. There is also an extremely problematic issue with these early texts in that they tend to take aim at countries in the southern hemisphere for having like overrun populations. India particularly is is a target of um, US academics or popular writers that take aim at overpopulation. And they look purely at the number of population, you know, number of people in an area as an issue of population. And they never really talk about how overconsumption plays a significant role. And of course, if you're talking about countries where the average kind of member of the population eats or drinks or, you know, is is living beyond their means, then America Mm -hmm. has a very poor track record uh, on that front. Such a (laughs) poor poor track record today. Yeah. Um, Inclusive. The side of that sort of overpopulation thing I was familiar with, yeah, it's kind of always been kind of a bit problematic the way it's been talked about, isn't it? Yeah, I've got a copy of Road to Survival somewhere in my in my in my bookcase, but um, reading through it, it's definitely uh, there's some passages you get to and think, oh, it's, it's not good. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, I I think yeah, that's kind of, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, it took such a long time for things to sort of cascade and resonate with people. Because mm. some of the people addressing these issues weren't doing it in the most um, empathetic way, I guess. that I don't know if that's the best way of saying it. Um, I mean, I don't know how you feel about yeah, it, I mean, Nick. <laughs> but, do you mean, I guess, kind of just disregarding humans over the environment kind of thing or well i mean that always happens but no no but you know and and this is i think this is you know exactly where where i understand nick and and his perspective as 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 a cultural scholar part of my concern is that whatever the problem it is that i'm dealing with it is caused and affects you know the cause and the effect is usually the same target which is people yeah now that is great, but it's also bad because if you address a problem that is caused and affects people, and you only focus on the um, aggressive, militaristic um, view where you kind of just make everyone feel crap and responsible without giving them uh, a point where to step on and, and move forward it feels antagonistic and when you're dealing with people it's it's just basic human psychology and and human sociology particularly when you're breaking an idea which is still very fresh and very new you know as much as these movements had been going on for a while they hadn't fully congealed into something that was tangible even for a government 
mm-hmm. until literally the last century ish. So you can't you can't try and and break people's walls, but it's not gonna take you very far. If you're gonna do that, you're gonna have to make it be digestible. And a lot of these texts, at least I find, are not digestible in that sense. They are very, very much out there to smack you in the face and make you feel bad and sorry, which is fair enough. But it it, it yeah. puts it puts things in a in a back foot where it's very difficult to move forward for. And and part of the issue that happens is that resistance grows. And I think yeah. that's I mean I. Again, Nick can definitely develop a lot more on this, but I think that's one of the biggest issues that we have over the 70s and up until certain stages of maybe the late 80s, which is that constant resistance against the movement because mm. people just, just you know, whether it's from corporate greenwashing to people not wanting to hear what they're being told, it causes that friction because it's not being addressed properly. Would you uh, say... But- um Part of the problem may be the sort of, I think, preservation type uh, approach of trying to separate humans from nature. and 100% yeah. and at the same time, Which not. you can't really. Yeah, it's, it's yes and not because you can try and in some cases you have to separate humans from nature because as people, we have separated ourselves from nature as culture you know that as as societies as structures that's what we've done yeah and you cannot negate Not that fully. simply because yeah simply because in reality we're just as part of this ecosystem as everything else you can negate the fact that for one reason or another this is how humans have built their bubble so yeah. you, you kind of have to accept them both and find a way of you know winning people over yeah. um but yeah, on on that on that note, um, I was wondering if Nick could tell us a bit more about those sort of crises, those resistance issues, and how we move on to the more, I guess, the more familiar side of environmentalism for at least some of us, which is from the eighties onwards, um, and how those things kind of take us to where we are now, ish. Sure. So I guess, like, so, so, uh, can I can I unpack a few of the things? You said yes. First? Yes. Okay, please okay. do. <laughs> yes. So I guess the it may be jumping ahead, maybe ten years or so. In our, if if we're currently sitting around like the late forties, early fifties in our timeline, um, that idea of you, you know the more extreme your message and putting people off or not, um, that's what that was one of the kind of the key things I looked at in my research. In that, if you look at um, any environmental group that's known in the US, they they weren't considering themselves environmentalists yet or not. There's a group called the Sierra Club. Um, and they made they I think they've even got like branches over here in the UK, maybe somewhat, uh, but they're, you know, majority uh, a US movement. Uh, mm. They were considered like the most radical in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And they were the most known. They were the most vocal. Uh, they got a lot of success done. Um, but David Brower, who was the head of the, the organization until the late 60s, where he got uh david brow was a kind of environmental luminary he was seen as almost kind of a spiritual successor to john muir in his in in, in his fervency of the environment but uh, kind of in, in in line with what lily's been saying he was so 
militant is the wrong word because he was not this is not an era where environmentalists are preaching aggression against anyone in that sense but but in the context of the time but like what you said is absolutely right and we will get there um so the end point of this would be in the i think the 80s the 90s can i swear on the podcast one swear word the earth first who are a more radical environmental group who do i believe have branches here they advocate for something called monkey wrenching which is the idea of environmental sabotage Mm -hmm. so um you know cutting cut um you know damaging industrial equipment and that kind of thing um blocking access to like mining or more often logging sites um but at a certain point they um they publish in their journal a list of i think big members of industry um and they don't say to do anything but but the the title of the list is the eco fucker hit list so <laughs> it leaves very little and i, be, I believe the uh, is it the unabomber ted kaczynski when they finally arrested him for um his reign of terror he was kind of a serial killer in the us uh, they found a copy of the journal in his cabin right um so there is uh, a, a limited radical fringe that's that's uh, and the, like you said that just sparks more and more resistance um to mm. the cause david brower's point in the 60s before any you know physical aggression was threatened was that um even if his group was seen as kind of the most controversial outspoken group if you look at the how if you look after sierra club like publicity campaigns which they conducted through the 60s um, they did big publishing series and stuff very successful even if uh, a portion of Americans ended up hating them, they had publicized and promoted environmental consciousness in such a way that they had moved the needle in the right direction. So even if people ended up directly hating him and his organization, I don't think he minded that much as long as the movement as a whole grew. Uh, it turned out in 1969 that the rest of the Sierra Club didn't agree and they kicked him out. Um, so so, so mm. he alienated kind of most people, or at least enough people around him to to have himself um, expunged from the organization at that point. Um, yeah. Um, the other point I was going to say uh, in terms of uh, preservation, encouraging nature as separate is absolutely kind of the, the human view. The other problem that the Sierra Club and these early groups like the Wilderness Society in the US and to a lesser degree with the Isaac Walton League and the National Audubon Society, the way they depicted nature and they, the way they photographed nature and the way they talked about nature is this, this kind of holy thing that was separate. Mm. If you talk about nature in that way, you also kind of underline the idea, well, if his nature is separate, nothing we can do as humans affects it, which is kind of antithetical right. to the idea of environmentalism itself. You know, yeah. if you look at all these, um, I don't know if we'll have time to discuss the the images I sent, Lily, for this. Uh, the, the photo I, reckon, I reckon we probably can. Okay. Uh, probably. If, we'll, if, we'll if anyone Googles like <laughs> Ansel Adams and they look at his, his vast pictures uh, of the American wilderness uh, and like often he's known for like national parks, like Yosemite, the Grand Tetons, um, that mm. kind of thing. I can include some pictures on the blog for this. Yeah, you you basically, very famous photographer, probably one of the most famous US photographers. And you can find his, every every time it's Christmas, pre-COVID, you know, if I go to a winter market in the UK, I can always find an Ansel Adams calendar of Mm -hmm. the the American West, which is very strange to to me in a way, but he's this insane cultural reach. Um, But there's never any people in his pictures. It's always, Mm -hmm. you know, you can never find a single human being in in those photographs, um, which is a problem because I guess on the one hand, yes, he's promoting kind of nature is beautiful. Um, but on the other hand, if if that is if that is the image of nature that is being promoted by preservationists, you also ultimately like Yosemite looks beautiful, but that's what not if I look outside my window, I can see like an allotment, but that's not yeah. it doesn't look like Yosemite. So your preservationists also kind of have this problem where 
they were promoting these amazing like you know natural right. landscapes but it kind of if all value if all human value about nature is based off those landscapes mm-hmm. you know what people what environmentalists would like us to i guess is to value the nature like on the side of the motorway you know you need yeah. to have the same mm-hmm. need to protect those very mundane overlooked spaces um as well I- I guess it it kind of reminds me of the uh the the problem with kind of endangered animals and like the focus on the panda like the the very cute endangered animal versus something that doesn't appeal to a lot of people but is still just as important. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's um I think it's I think there might I don't I think some academics have called that the Disney effect. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's Disney that, yeah. Disney films have prioritized um large mammals uh, in terms mm. of kind of disnifying them. Um I did have a seminar session once where I tried to get some of my students to uh, disnify um, some of the creatures voted the most ugly in nature. Oh, okay. uh, didn't. Uh, I don't know. Don't know if they really understood the, the, the what I was going for, but um, that, that, was a one, <laughs> that was a one-time thing. Um, yeah. So that sorry, the idea of nature being separate uh, from humans kind of neatly brings us to the beginning, I guess, of environmentalism in the US and. Mm-hmm. This would be, if I'm okay to talk about Rachel Carson now. This is, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, so during this time, uh, the environmental f- like major flashpoints are still based off the in the 1950s through to the late 60s uh, on dams. There are other conflicts going around, and more concerns are arising about different things. But the big like national press things are dams. So the Bureau of Reclamation in the Western US are trying to build dams. They tried to build one in Dinosaur National Monument, which they failed to do. Uh, they try to they do kind of a deal with the Sierra Club and other preservation groups to build one in Glen Canyon, which is in the southern central Utah. It's basically in the in the middle of nowhere, um, and which they do. Uh, and many of these groups realize after the fact that Glen Canyon is actually far more beautiful than Dinosaur National Monument, so they've kind of made this error. Um, and then at the end of the 60s, uh, which was incon- would be inconceivable today, they try to build two ca- uh, dams in the Grand Canyon and flood the Grand Canyon. Um, which is <laughs> they were crazy ambitious back then. Crazy, yeah. crazy to think of now. I, it wouldn't have flooded it all the way to the top. You know, there would have been <laughs> the Grand Canyon's massive, but uh, yeah. The point is, I guess, even in the late 60s, the headlines are still very much, um, you know, preventing the development of these large industrial energy infrastructural projects in nature. Mm. But there are other things going on in the background that we would identify, I guess, at this point as more environmental uh, or part of environmentalism. And the really the big one is uh, Rachel Carson and the publication of Silent Spring. So... Silent Spring is on the surface, uh, it's it's kind of like this largely accurate, I think scientists have, have talked about it in the years since, diatribe against the American pesticide industry. Um, and there is this pesticide that is used almost endemically in the US at the time called DDT, which is, I'm going to try and pronounce mm-hmm. the whole thing now for your amusement, uh, trichloroethane, I think is the full title. And it's seen as this miracle pesticide uh, to the point where it's sprayed on fields to, you know, kill insects. Um, but they also, uh, you, you can easily kind of Google the image of this. They would spray DDT on neighbor, uh, like in neighborhoods and near the beach and kids will run through cloud. There's pictures of kids running through clouds of pesticide for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very much in keeping with the early sick in the early kind of late fifties, early sixties in the U S there is an incredible, uh, Sorry, late 50s, early 60s, yeah, US. Uh, there is an incredible amount of faith in science and technology to have societal benefits uh, with fewer downsides. Now, obviously, at this point, right. there are 
groups out there that are like the anti-nuclear movement is growing at this point this is not you know a universal perspective it, it, it never is but um ddt is seen as this miracle pesticide rachel carson is a gifted scientist who never got her phd because i think she had to care for her ailing mother but she's you know extremely intelligent and she's she she i guess she kind of occupies a similar trajectory now almost to david attenborough where she's known for a long time of promoting the wonders of nature through her writings so similar to david attenborough's um you know uh, documentaries and yep. then she suddenly mm -hmm. turns to doomsaying with silent spring um okay. because her i think she had a friend who owned a bird sanctuary ddt was sprayed near some fields and right. then all the birds died so Carson begins mm. to question, you know, preservationists have often told us that nature is insulated from human affairs. And Carson had very much bought into this idea. And her focus in her writings is often on the ocean. So there's a, a kind of an environment that's even more removed from human affairs. Although as we are talking about the, these days with microplastics and ocean pollution and ocean acidification, that's yeah. obviously not the case there uh, and hasn't been for a long time either anymore. Mm. Um, but Carson's key point really is that, uh, and like I think Lily said, today we recognize this to some degree, environmentalists mm -hmm. recognize this, is that all our activity and all natural activity is intertwined. And it's, it's you know, it's in an inextricable way. We can't really insulate ourselves from nature and vice mm -hmm. versa. Um, but when Carson expresses this, it's, it's, it's seen as this like radical, absurd, almost statement at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where even a lot of the conservation groups that I've met, or preservation groups that I've mentioned, uh, a large portion of the individuals who still have ties to the industry, including the Sierra Club, there's a lot of ties to the pesticide industry in the Sierra Club, they turn against Carson as well. Mm. And she has, there's a, a I guess, a, a vicious wave of criticism um, comes her way as a result. Interesting. Um, and a lot of the, I think a lot of the criticism of Carson then you see particularly prominent in the US today, although it's even worse in terms of the decline of their civic political culture, mm. where there are attacks against her. So she never married. She was called a lesbian. Um, she was called mm. a communist. All these kind of unsubstantiated accusations. Um, and conservation groups, again, do not really, or preservation groups, do not really support her on the whole. Oh, okay. Huh. I yeah. think it's, today... Um... <laughs> Sorry, you were saying? No, no, go on. I think today she her DDT was ultimately banned in 1972 in the US, right. but it's still I believe the US still sells it to other countries because it's not banned everywhere. Mm. Um, in terms of looking at how the American right has tried to attack environmentalism, that has become an interesting issue because uh, a common I guess talking point from right wing ideologues has been that. Because DDT, although it has an effect on humans, so it exists in the environment for, I think, 10 to 15 years after it's sprayed, they found mm -hmm. DDT in, like, mother's breast milk, it, uh, and it causes, I believe, cancer after prolonged exposure. And it exists mm -hmm. in the higher levels of the atmosphere for a long time, I believe, as well, which is the problem. Um, what it does do, it does, it did what it said on the tin, you know, it did kill insects. So many right-wing ideologues after Carson died and really still in the 21st century they accuse her of being responsible for millions of deaths in the third world because of malaria because ddt mm. is, is a constrained substance and the us can only or in historically is now only you know produced so much um so it's interesting to see how these things evolve <laughs> in that sense mm -hmm. yeah but, I, it's it's all about that leverage isn't it um which is a bit 
it's a bit weird. Sometimes it really makes me feel like it's a bit twisted. And I don't really know how I feel about that. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I think arguments that, that the reduction of DDT spraying overseas has caused more malaria deaths may well be true. But it's not it's you know, it's it's a classic bad bad faith argument. They're not mm-hmm. I don't think those arguments are originating from a genuine concern from the populations who have high rates of malaria. Right. Um they're usually done by you know, people who have industrial capitalist interests in the US and they want to, you know, disparage the environmental movement on, on that front. So it's I think it's an effective tool, and I think it's unfortunately proven to be a persuasive one in some instances. Mm. But it's not um it's not, yeah, it's not, it's not a good faith argument. I suppose that that can always kind of be done with any decision that's made to uh, to try and make a positive change. There's always going to be some downsides that people will inevitably focus upon. Yeah, indeed. And I think it speaks to the problem of understanding environmentalism as it emerges, because mm. a lot of these social protest groups in the 1960s in the US, which were, were higher profile, um, you know, so civil rights, anti-nuclear, anti-Vietnam. Right. Even groups who resisted this, these social changes in the 60s in the US, they had a very good idea of what they represented. So they knew, broadly speaking, civil rights was about seeking equality for African-Americans. You knew yeah. anti-Vietnam was obviously anti-Vietnam and anti-nuclear as well. They are single issue kind of things. Mm. But once Silent Spring and other concerns like overpopulation issues stop, kind of percolating into the consciousness of these environmental or preservation groups that are going to become environmental groups. Uh, like that, our definition of the environment in the start, you know, like the environment is the environment, it's everything. So you can suddenly have this new social protest movement emerging at the very end of the 60s. And a lot of conservative critics are thinking, well, this is expanding. It's becoming very popular. But unlike civil rights or anti-Vietnam or anti-nuclear, we don't know how large this is going to grow because mm-hmm. they're asking for they're kind of seeking transformative societal change. Yeah. Um, but where do we go? We've suddenly gone from, or well, they've got an issue with dams, to now they've got issues with pesticides, they've got issues with population, um, and then pollution becomes a major thing. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the, even if the protest isn't um, violent, the rhetoric is often extreme. So right. there's a lot of kind of talk in like by 1969, a lot of environmentalists are saying, you know, they'll be called environmentalists, you know, after the fact, we've got like 10 years left to save the world, we're all going to mm-hmm. die. Yeah, um, yeah. And this isn't one or two people, this is a fairly common kind of thing. Yeah. Um, That's the thing you hear referenced quite a lot by right wing now, isn't it? That mm-hmm. oh, 10 years ago, they, they said we'd be underwater. <laughs> um, yeah. And it plays into the fact, I think, that um, the one of the most persistent characterizations of environmentalists in the US from about 1970 onwards were environmentalists will often and I, I think I, again I, I the argument is designed to disparage the movement but I don't think it's entirely unfair yeah. is environmentalists want to save the world but their rhetoric suggests they they don't have the emotional equilibrium or temperament to do so mm-hmm. okay yeah, um, that's, that's I think that's why I always go back to that empathy um, because the way they come across, particularly during that time period, yeah, it very much sort of just, it almost seems like they're passing judgment and all they're giving through to other people is doom. Like, mm-hmm. you know, this is what's going to happen and, and we're all walking dead anyway, rather than doing what, well, at least I think a lot of, ecologists more than environmentalists 
are doing these days, which is, well, okay, hang on. Yes, we have some pretty sticky situations at hand, but if we act now and we take this seriously, we can not only make improvements, but we can do a lot of positive work, which will no longer be just preservation, but it will be prevention. It will be, mm -hmm. you know, active reinvigoration of certain areas and, and whatnot. So yeah, I, I completely agree with, with what you're saying here. And this is this is why I feel like there are certain groups. Like I really think, um, in in a, in a recent case in the UK, like Extinction Rebellion is an interesting case study mm. because they, uh, uh, like Lily has kind of said, understanding them on an empathetic level. I understand if you are into environmental matters at this point, that kind of fear and desperation. I have great sympathy for because there are days yeah. when I feel it myself. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I. Uh, again like they said like their approach breeds more resistance and it seems like a lot yeah. of their targets like like targeting public transport that's rather questionable yeah. um seeking and uh again lily's kind of had earful from this for me um celebrity environmentalism mm -hmm. uh, one of the things i wrote at the end of my phd is the environmental groups tried to bring in robert redford in the 70s um mm -hmm to kind of contest a certain um, environmental uh, energy project they were trying to disrupt. And it worked, but the amount of backlash it caused was, you know, like regional, not just within the state of Utah. And Redford was a committed activist, but he was kind of the worst kind of person because he I think he'd married a Mormon woman and then divorced her so in Utah he was he kind of became like public enemy number one for a while oh, um okay. and it was a Utah-based project so I should say to clarify so so um it reminded me of um when Instinction, uh, Extinction Rebellions flew in celebrities from the US to protest in London right and you've got to think like that's the it provides visibility on the one hand but but on the other it, it's it, it speaks again to the problem of environmentalism failing to form a a coalition that lasts, which it doesn't in the US either beyond really the 1970s, of all parts of society, because again, it plays back into that idea that environmentalism is a cause of middle and upper middle class uh, white individuals, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, <laughs> like many things in life, uh, it ends up boiling down to certain groups, doesn't it? Um, yeah this. and if we do a sequel <laughs> podcast on this i would note that there is an entire other subject because really everyone we're talking about tend to be kind of you know euro-american in the mm. 20th century but yeah. if we do go deeper into the 80s and the 90s you get into issues of environmental justice which is you know the ideas of um uh, african-american and minority communities um often living in urban environments which preservationists and conservationists have typically ignored uh fighting mm. for um their own kind of rights and the their access to equal environmental conditions, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the issue within environmental history or within other historical kind of disciplines is that sometimes there will be, so like the, the example I always like to give is Martin Luther King, when he was assassinated, he was on the way uh, to a group of sanit a sanitation workers protest. Oh, right, yeah. um, so arguably that's, that's an issue of environmental justice. That's you know, you can conceptualize it as um, King being on his way to an environmental protest, but yeah. it's very, very rarely seen like that in history. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, but would you say that um, as time goes on, a lot of these movements do sort of kind of start to merge together a bit more? Or... Um, I think the opposite. I think there has unfortunately been a schism hmm. after 1980 um, oh, okay. where the major environmental groups that have been around for a long time, so Sierra Club Wilderness Society, who have rebranded after Earth Day in 1970 as, you know, environmentalists rather than conservationists and 
by this point no one's really using yeah. the term preservation yeah. um they have become large not international but national um groups that have probably more of a they are still they are using kind of this new tool that emerged in the 1970s of environmental law which is very good um and there are other groups more exclusively like uh, i think earth justice was um came think so. off the sierra club um but they have more of a corporate culture at this point right. and they are dependent because um some of them the sierra club lost their tax exempt status during their attempts to stop the grand canyon dams being built hmm. um the irs turned on them um oh, okay as, as a kind of it was seen Lovely. as you know yeah it was seen as an intentional ploy to cut their uh, their funding but yeah. it means over time uh at least in the, i'm not i can't really speak to it today but in the end by the end of the 20th century they were very dependent on rich donors um, oh, okay. And the problem with rich donors is they do tend to be more conservative. So they, if they're going to contribute to a group like the Sierra Club or Wilderness Society, they're probably more interested in them supporting, you know, the creation of new national parks or the, you know, the protection of existing national parks, kind of not elite playgrounds necessarily, but certainly, but they're not so interested in, in like vitriolic um, attacks against, you know, industrial polluters and, and stuff like that. So these right. major groups are maybe constrained in more ways than we think when we kind of see their large profiles. The other end of the spectrum is is like environmental justice groups. Um, they will often form locally and they will be based around a specific issue. So, you know, a local plant that's polluting an area or something like that, they'll be anti-pollution, but they won't necessarily build that into a movement that talks about pollution like in a wider area. So they tend to exist for you know that issue and based on the resolution of that issue they will either dissolve or you know become defunct over time so i guess there's the senses from at least existing research um and there's obviously once we get into like the end of the 20th century beginning of the 21st there's less history quote unquote um there is a sense i guess of a lack of a middle ground in terms of environmental groups you have the massive ones um they used to be called the group of 10 in the us um and the small ones that are local strictly local um, but in terms of environmental groups that operate on a regional level, they don't tend to be so many. Right. And, and I guess uh, kind of along with what you were saying, that you kind of get into the whole other kettle of fish of the kind of limitations and the problems with charities as a whole versus, you know, other yeah, absolutely. methods of thought, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just piggybacking on, on what you were saying and sort of moving on to something that is closer to, to home and how things have sort of splintered and merged and, and whatnot. I think um, because a lot of this stuff happens in the 80s, it's because there is a lot of social changes towards yeah. the end of the 70s and the 80s, which, you know, really really push these issues to the forefront and unfortunately uh, the attitude seems to have been divide and conquer rather than realize that the vast majority of these issues come from the same root and instead of axing that at the root we've we've sort of splintered it into many things and one of the things that you know um I, I don't think we've talked about a lot um and maybe we can backtrack a little bit into it is things like um reggae and how reggae culture and obviously black identity tied into um these type of issues and of course all, all of the social justice movements um from the late 70s and, and the 80s towards black people and and the same with feminism right because um mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of the things we weren't mentioning about um uh, 
lady we were just talking about previously. Her name's literally just dropped my mind. <laughs> you, you mean Rachel Carson or? Yes. Um, I think I think one of the, or at least uh, to me, it kind of has always screamed that a lot of the backlash that she also received was because she was a woman and and because of feminism. It never helps, does it? Yeah. Exactly, and because a lot of um, people in her situation and and later on in the eighties, and I mean, let's let's face it, this is kind of you know this is this is something that I've been trying to explain to a lot of people is that. If we actually start assessing feminism for what it is, which is indeed a Marxist movement to just try and rein in a lot of things together, but then deeply misunderstanding and evolving into different ways. Yeah. Um, you cannot have environmentalism without feminism. You cannot have environmentalism without, uh, you know, racial equality, without ethnic equality, without cultural equality, because... Um, and, you know, one thing that every single human being has in common, regardless of who they may be, where they may come from, is the fact that they live in this planet. Yeah. So, you know, these things go hand in hand. And, of course, one of the issues is that particularly towards the end of the 80s and, and moving forward towards the 90s, radical feminism often piggybacks of eco-feminism and right. radical environmentalism and that has kind of contributed to, yeah, enabling certain people of certain political denominations, not all of them always um, right wing, but even within the left wing, um, you know, uh, associations, there has been some apprehension towards some of the women on that front being hysterical or completely bonkers and therefore taking things a bit farther than they needed to or, or in a completely different direction or, or context that it was hoped for. So, um, you know, this is, I think that's kind of why the 80s becomes such an important period, not just for environmentalism, but, you know, any, any type of, well, again, it comes back to culture, cultural change and, and social cultural change that happens. And, and they are all tied in together. Um, but, um, yeah, this, this whole thing of branching out, I think in a way has kind of done more damage than, than, yeah. than it it was hoping to fix um and yeah. it's something that we're reining in uh and, but we're only starting to rein in it now and that is well 40 years of damage which is not great <laughs> yeah um, i think that the thing that's been a problem in terms of um different groups and identities and concerns in the u.s like yeah. with rachel carson she so you, you mentioned kind of Rachel Carson was definitely attacked and called hysterical yeah. because she was female. In a lot of the hit pieces published against her, you'll often find they found pictures of um, Rachel Carson based off, I think it was either previous publicity for her books before she'd become, you know, um, before she'd gone on her um, successful crusade against DDT. Um, but they would often picture her like outside. So she had no children, but she mm. would be pictured outside in the forest talking to kids or she would be pictured in the kitchen. Like she was a scientist. If you want to like, you know, give an accurate picture of her, there are pictures of Rachel Carson in, in kind of a, a laboratory environment. Right. But the, the, I guess the, the, the media machine uh, had already uh, started turning against her in certain instances. Mm -hmm. Um, the thing that Carson unfortunately missed is that, you know, Silent Spring is, is a fantastic landmark book and it's often and rightly appears on, you know, top books of the 21st century, uh, 20th, sorry, century. Um, but what Carson was about to some degree was kind of about making the cleanest place, places cleaner. A lot of the places she talks about falls into that preservationist trap of looking at 
um, upper middle class communities that have experienced problems. In terms of how environmentalism in the US collides with ecofeminism, we're not really going to see that until I believe the 80s um, in the context of um, lower class white families, white communities. Um, so places like um, Love Canal, which I believe is near Niagara Falls um, mm -hmm. on the US side, that was a uh, a school, I believe, was built on a chemical dumping ground, which is never a recipe for success. Well, no. Uh, um, and that, <laughs> that resulted in uh, Lois, uh, yeah, Lois Gibbs, uh, uh, a, a housewife. Uh, she became an environmental activist, effectively, and she was integral in the foundation of um, the EPA in the US have something called the Super Fund, which is basically a, a vast sub, uh, in, you know, financial um reserve, I suppose is the best word for it, mm -hmm. uh, to deal with major chemical cleanups and polluting activities if the company uh, that is responsible for them either can't pay or has since, you know, become defunct before the the uh, the emergency, I guess, was found. And that's the problem with a lot of uh, environmental history or environmental protests is you're dealing with problems that may have kind of found their inception point like decades, if not centuries ago. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That yeah, I think that's um I not so much think but hope that we are starting to find some solutions to these problems now. But definitely from the point of view of, of historical analysis, obviously it, it kind of just adds extra layers to to the work that you know you do or people like you do because uh, you kind of have to just start peeling. Uh, without wanting to make a Shrek analogy here, you know, <laughs> <laughs> onions have many layers and to get to the core of it, you just need to start peeling and peeling and peeling and peeling to really understand sometimes the inception point of things and how certain, you know, organizations or associations have gone down one route instead of another route and it becomes quite complicated. Um, mm. it, particularly if you remove the human element, which is what, well, a lot of environmentalists do um and, and kind of why why their reluctance to identify as just a straight up environmental historian right um i am becoming uh, aware of the fact that we are getting uh to the sort of um cutting point for uh wrapping up the podcast so i mean i think sort of overall um, and despite much skepticism on our behalf, we sort of cover a general brief introduction into this whole time span of, of uh, environmentalism developments in, in the US. Um, but obviously, before we wrap it up, I didn't know if there was something that we may have missed or that you wanted to recap to, Nick, and develop a bit more. Um, if if Anything in particular that you feel like you wanted to really bring home today? And uh, this is this is your chance before we start. Um, well, making before we start closing, essentially. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, in, in terms of, I think expand is probably. Uh, I would be reticent to that at this point because I think if like if we do come back and talk about something like environmental justice or ecofeminism, yeah. those deserve their own kind of uh, hours. I think, or <laughs> yeah. I think it would be a disservice to them. The other thing, I mean, the two things I've been really thinking about recently in terms of the practice of environmental history is 
and I've been trying to pose myself these questions uh, and answer them. I don't know if our ending on like two methodological questions is the best approach. <laughs> but um, well, I mean, I, th I think there is value, particularly because, you know, one of the things or, or at least one of the reasons why we've been doing this podcast with specialists like you is so that either historians in the making or historians who are trying to navigate the, the system or, or things like that can actually see what is a way forward for them rather than you know getting to the same dead end subjects that are done to death and sort of just stirring the same pot but actually finding new ways forward so actually i think that's that's perfect because it kind of gives us a a point from which we can all move on from and and you know take it from there and maybe revisit at some other point so please please do Okay, so, so I would have two questions to ponder, but we, I'm not I, I'm not going to answer them because I don't have That's answers all at this point in time. <laughs> so the first one for anyone who out there is who's writing environmental history, and particularly if you're writing issues uh, that relate to environmental protests, not necessarily in the US context, but in any context, to what degree should or to what degree can we write environmental histories about protests without the concept of blame? Uh, the and that goes back to that issue of um, you know, humanism and resistance, I think, ultimately, um, where do we find that line? The second is, and this isn't necessarily a new one, I think Paul Sutter, who's a very prominent environmental historian, posed this, it must be almost a decade ago now, but it seems like the, it seems like, at least in the US context, scholars embrace this increasingly for a time, but as it's become increasingly clear how dire the climate crisis is becoming, they've maybe dialed it back a bit. It's I talked earlier and a few times throughout the podcast about this idea of um, preservationists being limited in that they could only conceive of nature as either pristine or you know desecrated with no middle ground. Environmental historians in the US context have increasingly embraced the idea of hybridity. So the idea of if you build a dam, you know, across a river, that's no longer a desecrated space, but it, it's it's you know a fusion of the of, of the natural and the mm -hmm. industrial. Uh, my worry with that is how do we measure environmental decline if everything is just degrees of hybridity? Mm. Um, and that's a much thornier issue. On, on that flip, um, as some of you may know, I literally just did a conference on cultural hybridity not long ago, and environmentalism was something that was very much out of the equation on the conference, um, at least to some extent. But I think a lot of the questions that or that came from that, which is, you know, how do we come to terms with with how hybridity is being utilized in some ways as an excuse to uh, defend certain behaviors. I think it very much resonates with environmentalism and maybe the reason why we didn't get to that uh, from a cultural point of view, because, you know, I mean, uh, personally, I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I cannot see or justify the building of a dam as a hybrid between industrial development and, and environmental conservation, preservation, destruction. I don't see it as a hybrid. There is, you know, for, for two, for two, the issue that I have here is that hybridity is often seen as a way for two diverging things to connect together and make something new when actually the beauty of hybridity and the reason why hybridity is is developed to such a stage where we have a, a globalistic society, which is essentially just a multi-hybrid layer culture, is because hybridity builds on the similarities rather than on the differences at core. And 
in you know industrial action is not similar to natural action or to environmental action they they are literally polar opposites right. so i yeah i think the answers to these questions are definitely definitely going to be moving the conversation forward but i sincerely hope that we don't use hybridity as a concept which is very much at the center of cultural conversations right now and social conversations right now as a way of dismissing um our actions as inevitable and that's that's my contribution to this particular thing i don't think that would be good for us um or a good use of the interdisciplinary uh, interdisciplinary methodology at all um or a good way forward for environmentalism and hybridity as a concept in general yeah. uh but that's my two my two cents on that one uh very good two cents well, <laughs> it just happened to be very relevant, so yeah. <laughs> and very That's timely cool. because I, I, you know, this this literally just happened five days ago. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm afraid I don't have anything quite as uh, <laughs> detailed to add. So, um, so moving on from that one, Nick, what what was your other sort of methodological question? And and oh, that was the first one. Sorry, yeah. So, uh, to what yeah. extent can environmental history be written without the concept of blame? Oh, yeah. I think that's concept of blame. Who? I think, uh, which I think is is a, maybe a larger discussion for history as a as a discipline at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying, and I'm not. I don't say that from the perspective of of, of getting away from blame, or even if that's valuable. Uh, I I just have been pondering that recently. Um, uh, mm. If I should lean in, lean into it more, it's ultimately that question of environmental history directly emerges and all the first environmental historians were environmentalists so mm -hmm. all so many historical subdisciplines are rooted in in political concerns and sympathies these days anyway which are, yeah. you know is is fine but i've yet to find one um i think i think inevitably um civil rights and histories of equality will be uh, another one certainly but mm -hmm. um environmental history remains i think uh, a discipline where the identity of the practitioners is bound up in the beliefs of um, environmentalism, at least more broadly, which is, I think is a good thing. But like preservationists, you know, back at the start mm -hmm. of the 20th century, who were really just interested in their form of environmentalism and they ignored African American issues and issues of, of kind of urban plight, my worry is by hitching our cart to that kind of um, movement, what are we missing? Yeah. Right. That's. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, we can we can ponder that for. I, I guess it's yeah. just kind of linked to the the general thing of like you know, as a historian, you kind of are supposed to be unbiased, which of course is ah, which is not true. Which um, is of course impossible, but yeah, you know, and to be honest, like with certain things, do you even want to be unbiased anyway? Like, that's I guess that's the question. Well, <laughs> I mean, I I said this at my PhD um, viva. Uh, I've said it in almost every single piece of research that I've done to date, yeah. and I will never be able to take it back because any historian who uh, makes believe with the fact that they are truly and purely unbiased, it's yeah. lying because our entire cultural, social, political, economic context is a bias our life yeah. experiences are a bias and as much as we can 
pen them in this sort of area of disbelief, my interests, my actions, my questions are going to be driven by those factors. Mm -hmm. Because as a human being, that's how we work. Absolutely. Um, you know, so, uh, so it's, um, it becomes a difficult, uh, a difficult subject because yeah. realistically, I can't put my hand up and say, yeah, of course we can do this completely unbiased and, and develop and explore the subject of, of blame in this particular issue in the same way than in civil rights movement and equality and, and many others, because I know it's not true. Yeah. And, and particularly, and this is something that um, I've sort of developed a recent interest in, is, is very much an embryonary stages, so nothing major, but when it comes to um, emotions and human emotions throughout history and, and how, how uh, we have a tendency of forgiving things or excusing things because at that time we didn't know better right yeah yeah you know and things like that we we do it even within just the the scope of of our current life and generations like just a simple example is like how people excuse um i don't know older generations for not understanding transgender movements or for not understanding mm. racism because well it's just at their time it wasn't a thing Fine. At their time, there may not have been a name to put it across, but it was still an issue. It's yeah. not something that happened 10 years ago. The vast majority yeah. of problems that as a society we're trying to deal with right now are a product of our past, which we seem very kindly inclined to ignore. <laughs> so I think the concept of blame is unfortunately going to be woven into some of these conversations. Yeah. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, that's, that's impossible to answer, really. Uh, I guess. I guess it just will be to varying extents, you know. Well, I think. Don't focus you know, on it too much, or you know. It yeah. it comes it comes to the matter of what is blame. It's two sides of the coin. What's the point of blame if there is not a point of responsibility? It's all very good pointing fingers and saying we've all have done stuff wrong if no one owns up to it or if no one presents a solution to yeah. those mistakes and that is the the moment where blaming becomes an issue because yeah when, when it's just the sole yeah, goal of something exactly yeah. because if you point a finger and you say you did this <laughs> and you sort of just look away waiting for everyone else to react you're actually not helping the conversation move forward you're just perpetuating issues because yeah. that feeling of blame and that feeling of guilt is something that humans are unfortunately going to latch onto. And yeah, it just kind of shuts things down, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and you know, we've, we've seen how these blame um, shaming and, and blame consciousness has tainted um, a lot of other issues. Um, and, and I can go to feminism in the same way that I can go to racism and, and things like that. You know, it, it's something mm. that I think for sure we need to address and we need to be aware of that it, it was our human actions who obviously caused this. But, but with that sense of responsibility and also with that sense of consciousness in the sense of, you know, it's like when people 
say that, and this is a very common and, and crude example, and, and I'm sorry I'm going to be this brutal, but it's it's a typical mm. one, is when people say that a German person um, cannot, I don't know, make any comment whatsoever, positive or negative, about Jewish people because of the Holocaust. Well, mm. what what is a 19-year-old today responsible for that has to do with the Holocaust, nothing at all. Simply because they're born in Germany, it, I'm sorry, no, that's not how it works. Sure, there has been issues within the culture that that person has been brought up that need to be addressed, and it's something that they need to be aware of, but they shouldn't feel guilty for it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they need to understand the responsibility that they carry because of their legacy to avoid that and to move things forward. But there is a difference between feeling the responsibility and feeling the blame. And I think that's really, you know, where, where as historians um, and as scholars overall and people, because at the end of the day, it comes down to us being human beings and therefore being irrational as much as we yeah. would like to be rational. I think that's where our emotions get in the way and where our emotions in, intrude into our analysis and our methods to... Um, to, to force reactions, to force changes um, when mm. we have much more useful ways of doing that that simply just requires scratching our heads a little longer to actually reach the, the right conclusion. But, I yeah. mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely going to be an issue. It is starting to be an issue. I mean, like, like you said, uh, extension, rebellion, movements, and things like that. It's, it's partially, it's where it's starting to... To, to, to brew and we need to be very careful because if we just let these these feelings of blame and whatnot drive the, the narratives rather than the feelings of responsibility, we are gonna only perpetuate damage and aggravate things. So it, it gets complicated, but it, it will happen. It will happen inevitably because it is in our nature. Yeah. Um and you know, unfortunately, that's where um where we just need to take it to the chin and make the the best out of it and accept yeah. our biases rather than pretend that we don't have any <laughs> yeah, and that yeah. we can be completely, you know, impartial and tolerant of about, about this subject just like many others. Um but it, you know, it's it's definitely from a methodological point of view, it's it's definitely issues that that I can see already so many new and existing scholars have mm. and i'm going to put another one out there is that the resistance within academia to change the structures that enable these issues to be perpetuated is mm. is prevalent and as scholars we simply ought to be better um so i'm just leaving that one there <laughs> for <Yeah>. the <laughs> people listening um because because that's you know that's that's Unfortunately, the i think that kind of links in with certain demographics and stuff as well, well for sure but like nick <laughs> yeah. said i think that's an entire podcast of its own right yeah. and and we are definitely over our time yes yes so <laughs> apologies for that um, could go that, on for a lot longer i'm sure you could. yeah <laughs> the, the end of this podcast got real deep real quick <laughs> well, i think it was bound to yeah yeah absolutely but you know i, I mean at um, the end of the day this is this is why we're having these conversations and you know kind of why our our 
entire brand is called new history because this is this is the jam right now this is what we're having to deal with yeah you know 30th of june 2021 <laughs> um <laughs> this is this is the brewing ground for all of these things that are happening and that we are we are living with yeah um and what will become of them 10 years down the line well unfortunately is beyond our scope so we can only give you a, a small insight um now so there we go yeah well so uh on that note <laughs> yeah thanks for uh Thanks for joining us, Nick. Uh, well, thanks for having me. It's very good to have some modern history being talked about here, especially yes. something so relevant as this. Um, even though it, it means it's totally outside my wheelhouse in a, in a few ways, and I'm just kind of nodding along, going, mm, "Yeah, interesting," but <laughs> that's fine. Yeah, and and I hope, um, obviously, I mean, as you guys may know or may not know this, but Nick is a very busy human being. Um, but I, I really hope that um, we haven't scared you away um, and that you come back for definitely part two and, and many more because there is a lot a lot in here. And and also, I'm just dropping it out there. Nick is also a bit of a foodie historian. <laughs> Very good. So um, I suspect that there may be some talks about this in the foreseeable future. Yeah, that would be great, actually. Yeah. I'm sure you can link the two topics very easily. Oh, well, very, very <laughs> easily. But I, I, I will leave that for, for the next one, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and on that front, um, yeah, once again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, Nick, for coming on board with us today and for um, a fascinating conversation that will surely lead to many more. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>